You're very welcome to the fourth episode of our Insights series here, hosted by BSI in partnership with McAfee. I'm Stephen Bowes. I'm the Global Practice Director here at BSI Consulting Services, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Nigel Hawthorne, who is McAfee's Cloud and Privacy Spokesperson. Hi, Nigel. Hi, Steve. Thanks. So, first of all, we want to make sure you to subscribe to receive notifications for any future episodes uh, that are coming uh, in in the near future. And in today's podcast, we're going to be talking about data loss prevention. You know, topic uh, Nigel and I are very passionate about, and we're going to be talking about the cloud. We're going to cover all things DLP and specifically some data trends we are seeing. And we're going to cover the data lifecycle, talk about the value of data. And we're going to talk about what is DLP and what are the different forms and considerations of data loss prevention, the cause of data loss. And we're going to talk about some client cases, a public case that's in the public domain and also a case that we've worked on ourselves, how to prevent DLP. So a lot of, lot of stuff there, a, lot of, a large topic, and we've got only a small amount of time. So we're going to get started. And the, what I want to open up with is around data. At the end of the day, uh, what are we trying to do? We're trying to prevent the loss of data. So why, why is that? And the reason for that is the data that, that we have. The size of data is growing exponentially. Everybody's aware of this. And indeed, IDC have estimated that there's a year-on-year growth of 30% uh, of, of data internally in, in enterprises. Every 60 seconds, there are about 187 million emails sent and over 150 terabytes of content created. That's every 60 seconds. And if we look at the IDC's Global Data Sphere 2020 report, the amount of data created over the next three years will be more than the data created over the past 30. Not surprising to a number of our listeners, I'm sure. What's also very interesting is that the consumer data, the size and capacity of consumer data will decrease compared to enterprise data over the next five years. So we'll see a seesaw effect. Obviously, the consumer data is greater at the moment. You think about Netflix and consumer content uh, that's being consumed. But that is going to actually swing back towards enterprise data over the next five years. And another interesting one is the fact that the ratio of unique data, so that data is newly created data and captured data, the ratio of that data to replicated data, you know, that data has been copied, is currently nine to one. So for every individual piece of data, on average, it's been replicated in nine different locations. There's nine versions of it. And that doesn't surprise if you think about Let's say, for example, I create an email and I create an attachment and I, and I send the attachment to my team and there's a team of five people. So it's in my sent items. It's on my local device where I've saved it. Um, it's in their inboxes. And then somebody then forwards it onto somebody else. And you can suddenly see how the nine to one ratio becomes quite obvious. And indeed, IDC are estimated will grow to a 10 to one ratio by 2024. So the amount of duplication out there is quite profound. Microsoft, who are just flying this year in 2021, or sorry, uh, for 2020, have issued their Q1 results uh, in October, just gone. And they've, uh, they've outlined that they have 115 million daily active users of Office 365. And that's up 53% since April 2020. It's an incredible consumption of their, of their, their services and data passing through their ecosystem. So what's important here, and one of the lessons I've taken out of all these numbers, these numbers are, are you know, phenomenal is we're going to have to let technology do the work. The, the numbers are too big um, from a manual perspective. We need to bring technology in, into play, and we're going to talk about that shortly. Um, data lifecycle. One thing we need to understand when we're considering a data loss prevention program or even talk about data loss is actually the, the, the journey that data goes on. You know, um, to, to remind people of the data lifecycle, data is created, first of all. Um, so we're creating data, we're creating a sales spreadsheet, we're creating databases, mails, and so on and so forth. But then what happens is we store them. So they're being stored somewhere. 
Um, and we want to talk about controls around that. The value of the data really increases exponentially when we're using it and sharing it. So these next two elements of the data journey that's on, it's been used, it's been consumed, it's been edited, amended, shared. And that's where the, the data um, value is really very, very hot. And again, this pertains to data loss prevention. You don't mind losing data that has no value, you know, um, but you do mind losing data that has a high amount of value. And when data is being stored, shared and used, that's when it's got its highest amount of value. Ultimately, data becomes aged, um, you know, um, where it becomes of less value. But it's, it's, it doesn't have no value because what, you, what you're saying to, about this data is that you're saying, okay, we have this data here. We, we've no active use for it, um, but we don't want to get rid of it just yet. We might need it for whatever reasons. Um, so we'll archive it uh, and we'll leave a pointer record uh, in the original system. So uh, archiving is where it has, it, the, the value is dropping. And then finally, data gets to a point where it has no value, uh, has zero value to you, it's of no use to you, or indeed it could be of, of negative value, it could actually cost you more than it's worth, in which case data should be destroyed. And this is the journey that data goes on from being created, stored, used, shared, archived, and destroyed. And Nigel, I think you've, you've probably seen something like this in your, in, over the years. Yeah, I, I think you bring up a good point about the value of data changing over time. And uh, I think we can probably all remember stories of people who had to issue their financial results early because, unfortunately, they started to leak it. And let's use that as a great example. If you work for a company and uh, you see the financial information, you probably have it for a couple of weeks before it's made public. During that time, it's possibly the most valuable data that is inside the organization. But the second that it has been made public, it's of no additional value if it were to get distributed. And so you could even define this piece of data as being valuable up until next Wednesday at 10 a.m. But of no value at that point. And I do think we need to look at data over time. I've been living in this house for quite a long time. I still receive physical mail at my house addressed to the previous occupant. You know, somebody has gathered that data, they've kept that data, and they're spending money generating mail shops that are actually useless because the person doesn't live here anymore. So let's make sure that we look at it at the end of its life as well and make sure that we're not keeping data that actually has got to the end of its value. Absolutely. And, you know, without dwelling on it, but it's certainly topic at the moment uh, with, with the COVID research that's going on, with the pharmaceutical firms all in the race to develop their vaccines and their therapeutics, um, you know, the, the value of that intellectual property uh, is phenomenal. And the controls that they need to be putting in place uh, have to, to mirror that as well. So, yeah, absolutely. The value of data needs to be taken into account when we're defining our DLP policy and our program. So just to come into the to talk about exactly what is data loss prevention what is dlp and you know if you if you google this you get various definitions and interpretations best based on which website you land on which vendor you talk about which international um you know uh, framework or association you're talking to. but ultimately uh, the, the the definition of a dlp is is it, it has a couple of broad areas and really it's about detecting potential data breaches and transmissions of you know, exfiltration attempts and preventing them by monitoring you know, so making people aware that these are being done, so detecting them and blocking the data uh, whilst um, it's trying to be exfiltrated, while the breach is trying to occur. Um, so, and also, you know, blocking it whilst in use, in motion, or indeed at rest. Um, so, one of the key things for me, uh, you know, I'm 25 years in the game now this year, and um, is what's driving DLP adaptation. Now, DLP is a, is a long-standing concept, 
And, um, you know, years ago, I worked in, in financial services. I, I was on the uh, infrastructure teams. I was on project teams. And sometimes we'd see the information security officer coming down the corridor. We'd, we'd walk in the opposite direction because security was seen as this, this speed bump on the way to getting things done. Uh, but what we're seeing from our side is uh, driving at this DLP adaptation is, is the new breed of roles that are coming in CISOs and chief data officers um, who are bringing in this new regime. You know, they've got, they, it's been recognized of the, the, of the value of data and the, the damage that can be done by a, by a breach. So, so it's being brought in that way. Obviously, we're still seeing the regulatory and compliance side of things as well. The, you know, and that's been expanded, obviously, with GDPR in 2018 and CCPA um, last year. There's a, a wider set of regulatory and compliance requirements beyond the existing ones like PCI and HIPAA and others. Um, so that they're really driving it. Nigel, from your side, what, what, do you agree? Do you, do you see other factors driving adaptation of DLP? Yeah, I, I think that um, obviously regulations are helping remind us to do the right things. Let's be honest. They are there because they're necessary. But I'm now seeing more people who are taking a, a bigger picture view and are realizing the costs of um, data loss to their brand, to their uh, customers, to their potential revenue. And I think that's a, um, a great thing, actually, because it shows that we are taking this very much more seriously than we used to. Yeah, agreed, 100%. So let's dive into the um, what, what are some of the causes of data loss? Um, you know, what are some of the ways? And we're, we're not going to be exhaustive here. We want to be indicative, really just point out some of the key areas that we've seen, um, you know, and that will help drive the mitigation program. So what I would always say to people who, uh, you know, are thinking about data loss pro prevention program and trying to identify the causes, you know, look to your industry sources. Um, there's some really good industry um, sources out there. And indeed, this is the podcast is, is you're doing exactly what we're saying. So one of the key ones that we look to as well uh, internally is is the Verizon reports, and I call it two of them: the Data Breach Investigations Reports, the BIR, which is issued annually, and the Insider Threat Report. And I wanted to zone, zone in a couple of areas of those as as causes of, of of data loss. So one of the big causes is obviously malware, and in twenty percent, twenty seven percent, according to the DBIR Verizon report, in twenty twenty seven percent of malware is ransomware. Okay, so we know what's going on there, and what one of the key things we've seen with ransomware is that it's not just uh, traditional ransomware. So ransomware, of course, gets in through a vector. Of course, what is the, the key vectors there? The, the top vectors, according to the Verizon, is email links, email attachments, and malware downloads. So, um, so navigating to websites, clicking on, on, on websites that have you know, um, loaded pages. So traditionally, ransomware, of course, got in, uh, encrypted the system at a certain point in time, and then obviously you got your you got your you got your 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 interaction with the with, with the bad actors to say look can you pay us x amount of money and we'll we'll give you the encryption keys and of course best practice and industry guidance is do not pay for the keys put our steps in place um, but we are seeing a lot of organisations um, don't have the appropriate tools in place and, and data protection in place which we'll speak about shortly so ransomware is a big one but the, what we have discovered in the last uh, couple of years last two years specifically is you know ransomware has evolved. And now what we're seeing is um, what's happening is that the, the bad actors are getting in, they're navigating through the systems, um, they have the ability to encrypt, but what they're also doing is they're exfiltrating the data out. might not be all the data, but certainly elements of the data, if not all of it, exfiltrating that out over a period of time, so basically taking a copy of it off, offline. And then they, they can ransomware 
the source data in your organization and then send you the, the threat, send you the notification. Um, but they let you know we've exfiltrated your data. So what was happening is, it's, I mean, it's quite easy if you have a very strong data protection program in place, data management program in place, you can simply wipe your disk space, uh, restore your data from the last known good, last night's backup, um, remove the, the threat from the network, you know, do your scans, remove the threat, you reset privileges and, and password, take the appropriate actions in a series of actions and get back online reasonably quickly. Um, so the actors, have, bad actors have recognized that and, and that's what's been done. And they also recognize the industry is following uh, legal, uh, you know, law enforcement's advice to to not pay. So what they're doing is they're exploiting the data, and what they're then saying is that they've got a two tier approach. They they can encrypt your data and destroy it, but they can also release it or they can sell it on. So um, that's a, that's an evolution of ransomware, and um, we've even seen cases where they don't even encrypt the data. They simply say we've got in, we've ta- we've all taken a copy of your data now pay us or we will encrypt it. You know, so there's variations of the ransomware which is interesting, and we're just going to speak about how to prevent that. Uh, shortly, and then these another area. What to, to jump in on? Sorry, Nigel, go ahead. Well, can I? Yeah, just jump in. A couple of things that I think are worth talking about in 2020. One is, of course, with so many of us working from home, and often people working from home using BYOD or uh, other devices. We are seeing that people are trying various different ways to get in via the employees, and not necessarily going and attacking straight into headquarters. And then secondly, I don't know if you saw this um, just a couple of weeks ago, there was some um, medical data released and the ransomware people didn't uh, go to the organization that lost it, but started going to the individuals and asked each of them for a very small amount of money not to release their particular data. And wow, that's, that's interesting and scary. And you just sort of think, they're looking for any way that they can monetize this content, um, not always attacking through the front door where you might expect, but coming in every single direction and trying to extract money in any way they can. No, you're absolutely correct. And this is exactly what we're saying. The evolution of ransomware uh, away from the traditional model of getting in and encrypting, you know, and uh, you know, focusing on another element of these um, reports, the insider threat report is exactly that, the insider threat. It's been disclosed now through the reporting that 30% of all breaches are due to insider threats. And they come in a couple of different variations. You've, you've got the, um, the careless worker. You've got the person who, doesn't, who, doesn't, who, who makes a mistake, basically, you know, um, uh, and discloses data that way. You've got the inside agent, um, which is basically someone who infiltrates an organization for, with the purposes of, of stealing data on behalf of, a, of another party. So they're, they're an inside agent. Uh, you can have a disgruntled employee, uh, which I think is fairly self-explanatory, um, and you can have the malicious insider. Um, so this is another insider, like the inside agent, but the malicious insider is someone who steals for themselves as against uh, stealing for on behalf of a third party. And then another insider threat that needs to be taken into account, and this is a big one, is the third party. You know, the third party. So these are the ones who are in your supply chain. Um, who have been, who make a mistake, who are negligent, who don't have the controls, perhaps you do. And we've seen big, big attack, attacks there. We, we saw Target in terms of their POS, their, their point of sale tar- attack many years ago was through the third party. Um, so these are a number of, of uh, insider threats that need to be taken care of, to be, be allowed for in your data loss prevention program and should be, should be, should be considered. Um, Nigel, anything to add there before we move on? Yeah, I I always feel uncomfortable with the phrase careless worker. You know, I 
unfortunate worker. I, I just think that we, um, you know, miss at our peril the complexity that workers have to deal with today. The, the number of different uh, bits of data that we share with them, the number of different systems that they have to learn how to use, and the fact that they need education and training on, you know, what does bad look like? Does that look like an email that's um, appropriate and real, or is it actually uh, uh, malicious? I mean, look, we do um, uh, phishing tests where we send messages to our own employees, myself included, um, and uh, there was one last week that said, um, uh, please click on this link to confirm the time and date you want to have the meeting about. And I can't really remember what the topic was, but I thought, wow, that was really well written. It looked plausible. Um, but I clicked on the link saying this looks like phishing. And sure enough, it came back and said, uh, yes, it was. It was part of our test. So I do think we need to be constantly vigilant even ourselves we need to test ourselves um to make sure that we're not going to be this as you say maybe careless or unlucky worker yeah absolutely and that will form part of of our dead loss prevention um recommendations you know in the next section one one thing i do want to speak about actually is is two case studies um one uh for so a client of ours that we worked on uh, i worked on personally and then one a, a public case study just to talk about something that's in the public domain so when i was trying to choose an appropriate um data loss uh dlp case study, there's so many to choose from you know so i simply said look i'll just do the most recent one which happened to be um this, this you know with sweden's largest private insurer folks group um they have a, a 50 billion dollars in insurance assets and they have disclosed that they have inadvertently shared up to 1 million people's uh, client data with facebook google microsoft linkedin and adobe and that was according to a statement issued on tuesday the third of november the firm said it discovered a breach after an internal audit and said it had reported the breach to sweden's data inspectorate so Again, that actually sounds to me like exactly what you said, Nigel, careless worker or careless team. It sounds to me like a misconfiguration. Uh, I don't have any details uh, beyond the public um, statements, but it sounds to me like that, you know, a database or a container or some kind of data repository was shared inadvertently, links to, you know, to shared links or whatever it was, and, um, and, and to, not just to anybody, but to, to Facebook. And it says it very blandly that we've shared it with Facebook, Google, Microsoft, LinkedIn, Adobe. To what extent who in Facebook, Microsoft had access to it? Very, very, uh, I'd be very curious about it. Any comments on that uh, that case study, Nigel? Well, I think we, we probably all know that health data is the most valuable that there is for an individual. You can't change your health data. And um, the difficulty we could have is, you know, in years to come, you could get a different price point on insurance than I do because a an organization has got your health data and my health data. And that, you know, just think of it from your own point of view rather than a business point of view. That is is truly scary. No, it really is. And 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 just you know, reinforcing that point on the on the case study. So a client of that we worked with uh, many years ago had uh, an accidental disclosure of data as well. Actually, um, you know, this was a financial company dealing with loans and mortgages uh, and lending products, and they had compiled an Excel spreadsheet for whatever purpose internally, uh, and they inadvertently sent it to a supplier. So that supplier must have been on a, a CC or or whatever it was, blind copy. 
and they received and that that client was outside of the jurisdiction it was in a different geographical location which made it a bit tricky uh, to be fair the company realized the mistake quite quickly they contacted the dpo the data protection ops and and we were engaged as a result of that so what we did there was and this is very important for clients is to apply a project management approach it's to bring a structure around the you know the incident response um you know asking three questions who what and when okay so what are we going to do what are the steps we need to take to mitigate it we need to contact the person that has received it um who's going to do that you know who's the person to do that and when are we going to do it and and build out a schedule of tasks um to ensure that all tasks are done um you need to ensure that we had we had to provide uh, evidence of destruction or deletion of the data from the from the third party so we had to engage them through sheet screen sharing um and we had to apply data destruction um you know processes there on their infrastructure with their goodwill and it was a goodwill situation um you know we weren't physically at their offices that you know many thousands of miles away um and then we had to generate a report uh, outlining everything that was done the, the scope of the incident the steps that were taken and to provide evidence of the, of the deletion and destruction of the, of the appropriate data and that was acceptable to the dpo who then closed the case with, with minimal um punishment for the client because they've done the right things in the right way in a, in a timely fashion so very similar to the, to the swedish one but just obviously from a financial perspective so these are kind of these are typical case studies that we're seeing and we're seeing it as nigel you would say on, on a daily basis um so what's very important to our listeners is talk about some of the steps that can be done to prevent data loss you know how do we prevent data loss occurring and and one way to look at it is simply to reverse engineer the causes we've outlined, we spoke about malware, we spoke about uh, insider threats and so on. So Nigel, from your side, what are, what are some of the key steps that our clients, our customers who are listening on this podcast can take to prevent data loss? Well, number one, of course, not all data is created equally. And, um, you know, you need to work out what's valuable to you. And is it your customer list? Um, is it the, or you, you mentioned, um, you know, COVID research, is it therefore research and development for the next product along? Is it your financial results? And you've got to sit down with all of the data owners to try to work out uh, really where your crown jewels will live and then work out how you um, find out where it is, um, which systems it lives in, um and not forgetting of course as you said if everything is being copied so many times uh, where else does it live i think i've seen unfortunately quite a lot of people who feel that they have locked down their main repository and then they forget that they've got employees wandering around with um, spreadsheets and databases on their own individual laptops so we do need to follow the data we need to watch where it's going data in motion data at rest and um, make sure with the growth of working from home the growth of cloud that we are looking at systems that aren't actually owned by us all of these systems may be used either by the corporation or by individual teams and users and we need to check what's going on and where data is living because you can only control it if you know where it is yeah, Step absolutely. two, I guess, then, is who has access to it. And, you know, the idea of looking at the roles, looking at least privilege, uh, you know, I, as an example, um, only deal with uh, customers and information in Europe, the Middle East and Africa. There is no reason why I should have access to uh, information on customers and financial results in Asia or, 
or the Americas. And happily, the way that the system is set up, I don't have access to that. In fact, I feel very privileged and pleased that I don't have access to that. That's one more thing I don't need to worry about. So I think the staff need to be involved and you need to work out who needs what and give them honestly access to as little information as possible. If we think of some of the stories where lots of data has got lost, I've been sitting there reading the articles saying, well, who on earth had access to all of that data all at once? The really, the basics of um, restricting what people have access to need to be the starting point of keeping things secure. Then I think we've got, you know, and I mentioned it before, but training employees it will never be um, enough, but it, it needs to be really a key part of everything. You need to not just say you need to watch a video for an hour every year, but keep on testing them, keep on trying things, keep on um, checking and even, you know, let's share some internal examples. If something goes wrong, um, I think many organizations hide that even from their internal employees. But every time something does go wrong, there are lessons to be learned. And I think we should be a little more open with our own teams about what might happen, what happened in the past. You know, yeah, okay, let's not name names, but um, we noticed in this department, for instance, and let's use a cloud-based example, that um, employee X decided to sign up to a third-party cloud-based backup service that backed up everything on their laptop. Why? Well, because they had both their personal data as well as business data on there and they hadn't asked for approval um, and then unfortunately that data got uh, lost from that backup service you know that is a lesson to be learned for all of us that we should be very careful about uh, what individual uh, services that we use because data may well be flowing out of our individual devices without us thinking about it Actually, just coming in on that, so, you know, that's one of the key mitigation steps that can be taken as part of the Bill of Suspension Programme, is your data management data protection, exactly what you said. And uh, we would always say to our, to our clients, you should have a, a, you should have a tiered model here around primary, secondary and tertiary backups uh, to ensure that you have the ability to recover and restore that data. Um, and it should be on different mediums as well. You know, you, you should be bringing a range of stuff. So we, we would advocate cloud-based backup for cloud-based systems. Um, and But the key thing there is around uh, data encryption. You know, if the data is encrypted, what's your key management? Where are your keys stored? Who access it? So taking the example you just given there, Nigel, of a third party doing a backup to the cloud, no problem with that at all. It makes perfect sense. Uh, you know, you're taking it off of the whatever the, the, the primary location is, uh, but that data should be encrypted and the key management should be with the data owners. It should be with with the organization as well so i think that's that's very important because one of the key mitigations not just for um for ransomware which would be the key would be one of the big ones because that means your data is is unavailable and you want to be able to restore but also for malicious insiders a malicious insider could very well go and destroy uh, data and not just holistic you know holistically end to end but also specifically you've called out you know uh, there might be quite specific malicious and then they might recognize the value of some data and destroy those elements of it and also there's there's also systems uh, uh, failure. I remember working on a system one time where it was a database system, and the client was getting sporadic results back from queries. They were running queries, expecting a certain set of results, getting a different set of results. And what happened actually was that the the, the disk subsystem had degraded the actual 
physical spinning disks that they were working on at the time, and that had caused what we call torn pages in the SQL database. And that basically meant that the values in the fields, the rows and columns of the database, they were being corrupted. So when you ran a query, it wasn't calling back the data from those fields because it wasn't, wasn't call backable. You know, so luckily they had a very mature data management system in place, very strong uh, replication synchronization system in place, and they were able to retrieve the data from an alternative system uh, going back a period of time. So data management, data protection, very important part of your data loss prevention program. Um, Nigel, I think one of the other elements that we talk about ransomware is visibility uh, into, into data traffic. I think that'd be fair to say, especially on the egress side of things. Well, what's, what's your take on that and what's your experience on, on that side of things? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, uh, again, you look at the reports and you see that when a company announces that they've had a data loss incident, the uh, attackers may have been in the system for months and they've been walking around looking for uh, data and then they've grabbed it and it's some time before it's noticed. So, you know, you really need to have a robust system that is looking for um, attackers, looking for people who've come in. There's um, the MITRE attack framework is really useful for the SOC team to look at and that's now been um, enhanced for all sorts of other attacks. So uh, there are systems that will watch cloud-based attacks using the MITRE attack framework. So that's really useful because you need to be able to start looking at unusual traffic behavior, unusual patterns that may well indicate some threat or other. You know, a simplistic example would be um, if I look at myself, I've worked for McAfee now for uh, six or seven years. And in that time, I've used a few laptops and a few phones and I've traveled around and the company has the data um, logged of everything that I have done. And if all of a sudden I was to turn up in a brand new country with a new device, then that's two bits of strange behavior. And that's something that should we should be watching out for. If Nigel turns up in Beijing and uses an Android device, wow, let's turn him off because who knows what's going on? Have I lost my credentials and someone else is logging in? Because somehow it doesn't look very likely that all of a sudden I will have appeared with a brand new device in a brand new country. So this is possible. The sad thing is that um, often people don't think about it and they, they look at the more specific thing of, has someone attacked this particular database rather than is this behavior odd, strange, unusual, um, strange patterns in the middle of the night, uh, enormous amounts of downloads from a system that uh, that user in the past has only done occasional reporting. All of those sorts of things uh, can be investigated, in fact, can be proactively looked at by um, systems such as cloud access security brokers and DLP systems that will look for and take action on unusual behavior. Absolutely. And if you combine that to assist you, in, especially from an insider threat perspective, with a really strong HR vetting process around starters and indeed the corresponding levers as well to mitigate disgruntled employee sort of thing. Uh, from a third party perspective, we would absolutely advocate the use of third party security questionnaires. Um, you know, you should create your own, but there are a number of available to you publicly if you want to use ISO 27001 as a base for building the questionnaire. You could also use the Cloud Security Alliance's um, CAIQ, which is their, which is their uh, cloud initiative questionnaire. And, and it basically poses about a hundred odd questions across a number of domains that you can use 
to vet your, your supply chain. Uh, in addition, you know, you could be using third party um, providers such as Dun & Bradstreet to get, um, you know, integrity ratings and, and, other, and other vendors as well. So very important to have that. What I, the key thing I would say is build it into roles and responsibilities, okay? Because everything we spoke about there are, are technical controls and questionnaires and technology and, and stuff like that. But it's, I, I think, you know, behaviors drive mindset and mindset drives behaviors. So by building it into the roles, making people accountable, have a data governance program, you know, have data owners defined, have it built into their, into their role, their responsibility. It's their responsibility. They're accountable for it, you know, um, and then drive those set of behaviors. I think would we'll, 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 would go a long way apart from the obvious uh, series of controls uh, and policies and, and technology that you can put into place. You know, um, so with that, I would like to summarize, Nigel, if I may, our, our, our summary of, our, of what we, we spoke about. We spoke about really understanding the data in your organization around the classification, around data governance, the value of data, the life, the journey that the data takes in, in your in your organization. Um, we talk about having an integrated approach. You, 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 whatever you put into play has to integrate what you have. You might have an ISMS or a TMS, so an information security management system, or a quality management system. You might have a PMO, you know, project management office, or you might have SDLC if you're if you're developing software. You need to bake this into all these elements, you know, and it needs to all come together. You need to have you know, built into your you know, business continuity plan and so on, and you need to find some of the remediation approaches that can be taken. And leverage technology, as I said, the data is so vast, it can't be done manually, it has to be leveraging technology. And so the approaches, Nigel, I suppose, in terms of the remediation approaches, I mean, there's a whole series of them, isn't there? You can, be, you can allow stuff, you can block, quarantine, there's a various series of triggers and actions that can be taken to remediate some, some potential data loss. You can. And I think that this is where, as you say, the amount of data that's being um, uh, transmitted around is vast. But also you've got users who are expecting that nothing is going to get in their way. So you need to make sure that the policies are robust, but also that um, they are fast to, to respond. And the user is told what's going on and maybe even user remediation. If something looks like a low risk um, incident, Maybe you allow the user to click on a link that says, yes, I've checked. I really do want to send this or, um, you know, maybe maybe an employee sends out a document that has a number of email addresses on it. And maybe you've set a, a policy that says um, three emails is OK. Um, five emails in a document is unusual, but maybe low risk. But I don't know, over 20 is high risk and we definitely want to block that. So in that sort of middle area, maybe a message comes back to the individual and says, um, you know, we noticed that there were five email addresses in this PDF um, that you sent out by email. Please click on this link to confirm that you meant to do this. And then the users can be part of remediation rather than creating a set of policies that um, fall apart because there's some poor person that has to try to make this sort of decision and won't be fast enough for the user's um, needs. Yeah, that's a fair point, absolutely. And the final word, if, if, if I may have it, is, is around understanding that this is a moving target. You know, data is changing on, on a minute by minute basis. The apps we're using you, you know your cloud service providers their infrastructure is changing the, the way that you know the, the way they apply their software as a service or even the platform services as a service and of course your user changing 
the levers, starters, and so on. So this is not a, a, a point in time exercise. This has to be baked into you know real time work and so on. So with that in mind, what I'd like to do is, uh, Nigel, I want to say thank you very much for joining me today. And uh, we look forward to welcoming you back on further episodes. And to all of our listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode of our series on privacy compliance in the cloud. Many thanks for joining us. In the next episode, we're going to be talking about GDPR and trends too. So make sure you subscribe for that and receive notifications of our series. Many thanks. Talk to you all soon.